Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Uvalde school police chief has been silent for days. That is until CNN caught up with him. The lead starts right now. In a CNN exclusive, a police chief confronted his response when asked about not cooperating with investigators investigators, and that wrong decision to hold officers in a hallway instead of immediately sending them in to take out the gunman who ultimately killed 21 people, including 19 kids. Plus, buckle up, gas prices hitting a hideous high, but it's the prediction for the next 10 days that may be even scarier and... A jury finds both Johnny Depp and Amber Heard liable for defamation, though, let's be honest, Depp won this trial. The significance of it all, beyond the gossip, spectacle, and social media snark. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our national lead and no clear answer in Uvalde, Texas, as to whether the chief who told cops to not storm the classroom where the shooter was during the massacre is actually cooperating with investigators. CNN's Shimon Prokop has caught up with Uvalde School District Police Chief Pete Arandondo this morning. He insisted he's been in contact with the Texas Department of Public Safety every day, he says. But just last night, DPS officials said Arandondo had not responded to the request for a follow-up interview about his actions or lack thereof during last Tuesday's massacre. Today, Uvalde is saying its final goodbyes to two more shooting victims, 48-year-old teacher Irma Garcia and 10-year-old Jose Manuel Flores Jr. And in the state capitol today, Texas Governor Greg Abbott officially requested a special legislative session, which his office says should focus on, quote, school safety, mental health, social media, police training, firearm safety, and more. CNN's Shimon Prokopes starts off our coverage today from Uvalde. Shimon, what else did Chief Arredondo tell you when you caught up with him earlier today? Well, Jake, as you know, we've been trying to make contact with him for days, certainly after Friday uh, when the state investigators revealed that he was the boss. He was the man that was running the show uh, on the day of the shooting and made that wrong decision not to send those officers in. We simply just wanted him to respond uh, to those allegations. Take a listen to what he said. Okay, cool. I just want your reaction we're gonna, we're gonna, to we're gonna be, the director we're gonna, McGraw we're gonna, saying that you were responsible for the decision right. we're to go be, into that room. How do you explain yourself be, to the We're going to be respectful to the family. I understand and, that, but and, you have and an opportunity going, oh, and sure, and we're, to explain and we're gonna, yourself to the parents. And just so you know, we're going we're gonna to do that eventually, obviously. When? And whenever this is done, let the families quit grieving, then we'll do that, obviously. And just so everybody knows, we've been in contact with DPS every day. And Jake, uh, he has not been seen. He has not been at any press conferences that state investigators had. Uh, and so he has not answered any questions. And he continues, uh, Jake, uh, to not want to answer any of those questions. Besides the fact, uh, despite the fact that so many mysteries remain about this and with all the discrepancies that police have put out, he continues to not want to answer any questions, Jake. And Shimon CNN also spoke to the Uvalde County District Attorney today. 
What did she have to say about the possibility of criminal charges? Well, that is something she says that is on the table, saying that she's going to review the report uh, from investigators, and then she will make a decision. So this could, Jake, the important thing in this is that this could furthermore delay information uh, from coming out because investigators could use the DA's investigation as an excuse for not releasing more information. So we'll see. We'll know about that in the next few days, but that could potentially be significant as this community, these families continue to seek answers. All right, Shimon Prokopes in Uvalde, Texas for us. Thank you so much. Details about this investigation are once again changing. Now investigators say the door used by the gunman was not propped open as they had previously announced. CNN's Ed Lavendera is digging into the further discrepancies. To honor the mass shooting victims, Albert Martinez and his family made this memorial. Martinez is related to three of the victims. His biggest frustration right now is finding answers. The biggest hurt that I have right now is that uh, we're not getting the right answers right now, according to what we're hearing. You know, you know, there, people are saying this and then people are saying that. I just wish they would come out with a... A right answer said, this is what happened exactly. At the center of it, why the incident commander on site at Robb Elementary kept officers waiting outside the classrooms instead of going in. The Uvalde School District Police Chief Pete Arredondo is facing harsh criticism for that decision. Authorities are now clarifying another key detail of how the gunman got inside the school. A teacher says the door that the killer used to get inside the school was closed but the door did not lock. This contradicts an earlier claim by the Texas Department of Public Safety investigators that the teacher had left the door propped open. And this new audio obtained by CNN affiliate KSAT went out to parents while officers were already on site and two students were calling 911 begging for help. There is an active shooter at Robb Elementary. Law enforcement is on site. Your cooperation is needed at this time by not visiting the campus. This as the community buries a teacher who died protecting her students and also one of the young students killed. The memorial of flowers continues to grow. So is the resentment for Arredondo, who was sworn in as a city council member yesterday in a private ceremony after being elected last month. To me, nothing's complicated. Everything has a solution. Back in April, Arredondo stressed the importance of communication at a candidate forum hosted by a local college. Communication obviously is key. I think through communication, everything can be resolved, um, whatever the issues may be. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has requested the creation of special legislative committees to look into school safety, mental health, social media, police training, firearm safety, and more. But Republican State Senator Kel Seliger is calling on the governor to do more and says something needs to be done to prevent another tragedy. This is not a partisan or Republican issue, Ed. Those children in Uvalde, they weren't Republicans or Democrats. They were children. And and they depend upon people like the legislature to do those things that make schools safe, and we've not done so. And Jake, Senator Seliger says he is open to raising the age limit to buy an assault-style rifle from 18 to 21 or higher, whatever the case may be. But he says anything beyond that really needs to come from Republican lawmakers. That is the only way any of these laws, gun reform laws, could pass. Uh, But clearly, Republican leaders in the state have not shown any desire to do that. 
The Texas State Teachers Association says that the governor's announcement today to create a special legislative committee uh, is not something that is needed. They call that move by the governor as weak and that Texas families deserve better. Jake? Ed Levendera and Uvalde, thank you so much. There remain so many unanswered questions about last Tuesday's rampage. Where was the school resource officer? Why didn't the school door lock when it was closed? Were the 911 calls from inside the classroom being relayed to Chief Arredondo, who made the decision not to send officers in? Did officers kill any of the kids accidentally? Joining me now to try to make sense of some of this is Terry Gaynor. He's the former chief of the U.S. Capitol Police. Terry, what do you make of all this confusion about whether the Uvalde Schools police chief is actually cooperating with investigators? Well, the, the information is confusing, Jake, and, and he needs to uh, be interviewed and uh, in a written statement taken about what he did and why he did it. It is very confusing. You just listed a lot of great questions, in, including what did the officers on the scene hear? What did they see? What information were they getting from the 911 call that helped them try to make decisions? I recall in one of the interviews that CNN has done very well from the scene, talking to one of the young girls who was in the classroom who said the shooter shot out some windows. So I'm still trying to piece together what they could have seen from outside looking in those uh, windows that are along the the, uh, exterior of the building, as well as what they could have seen when they were around it. What did you make of the, that's a mystery? What did you make of the interview Wolf Blitzer did last week with an individual uh, law enforcement official from Texas who said the reason that the officers didn't breach the classroom is because they could have been shot, they could have been killed. What was your response to that? Well, that's I mean, they forgot why they put on the badge and what they were trained to do. Now, no one should just be reckless in attacking that door when it should have been attacked. You have to have that plan together. So some of the things we heard initially, once the shooting stopped at whatever moment that was, and I know there's some dispute about the timeline, the person at the scene, whether it was that chief or someone else, should have been in the midst of figuring out what is the next step. Yes, you do want to contain them. Next, you do want to control them. But you also have to be developing a plan if you're the one who has to break into that building. It doesn't seem like anything like that was going on. And once the next round of shots uh, started, then there was no question about what they should be doing and whether you've talked about it enough, whether it's two officers, three officers, or four officers, they needed to go and put themselves in harm's way. Amidst all this confusion about Chief Arredondo and whether or not he's cooperating, Texas's largest police union is urging its members to fully cooperate with the Uvalde investigation. Can you think of any legitimate reasons why officers should not cooperate? No, unless they are fear that they've done something dramatically wrong or they're embarrassed because they didn't do the right thing. So they, there should have been a lot more action to try to save those children and rescue the ones who had been injured. And just like we're asking every police officer to do now, if you see misconduct, you need to step in. If you see the right thing is not being done, you need to do it. You need to put yourself at risk. Jake, I recall early on, you used to always hear sergeants at roll call saying, your primary job is to get home safe tonight. That is not true. Your primary job as a law enforcement officer is to make sure everybody else gets home. 
And you need to be trained and armed to do that. And whether they only had automatic uh, revolvers or some had long guns, they should have been about uh, breaking into that uh, building and even into that classroom. Even in those first few minutes when there's confusions, if the first responding officers jumped out of their police cars to get in there quickly, I understand that. Then while they're in those first few minutes and there were some nine officers there, you would send someone back out to the car to get the equipment that ought to be in the car to help you break into it if and when you had to. Yeah. So there's still a lot of information uh, and it's it's a, a terrible example of what we expect law enforcement officers to do. A week and a day later, still so many questions about the response by the law enforcement community there. Terrence Gaynor, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Coming up next to the White House, where President Biden is promising new sophisticated weapons for Ukraine. How the move goes back on something the president said just two days ago. Plus, she told the world she was sexually, mentally, and physically abused. Now a jury has largely sided with her ex-husband. The shocking verdict in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Stay with us. In our world lead now, the Kremlin making it crystal clear that Ukraine's weapons requests to the West are, in Putin's view, a, quote, direct provocation as the United States provides an 11th security assistance package to Ukraine. And President Biden flip-flops from this declaration on Monday. Are you going to send long-range rocket systems to Ukraine? We're not going to send to Ukraine rocket systems that can strike into Russia. That was then. Now, the newest assistance package includes long-range rockets that can be launched up to 49 miles. Still, Ukraine wants even more powerful range rockets. And President Zelensky reassures Biden he will only use the weapons defensively. Let's bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins at the White House. Caitlin, what are you hearing from administrations about this change? Well, basically, they say that they have assessed that this is what Ukraine needs. This is, of course, not what Ukraine wanted. They, they actually wanted longer range of rocket, these rocket systems known as HIMARS that they are now getting. These are about medium range. And you're right. They can fire about 50 miles, which obviously could potentially strike into Russia, which it is why it has raised this question for the White House about how they know Ukraine will not use them to do so once they put them in Ukrainian hands. And the White House and the Pentagon say that they have received assurances, even from President Zelensky to President Biden directly, that they will not use these uh, rocket systems that they are now getting from the United States to strike into Russia, given that was the line that President Biden had drawn. Russia, Jake, does not seem to be too convinced of these assurances that the Ukrainians have provided to the U.S. They say that by the United States handing over these more advanced, longer-range rocket systems that they're giving to Ukraine, they are risking widening the conflict that is going on, of course, ever since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But when the White House was asked about those comments from Russia, they said that basically Russia doesn't get a say in what the United States is providing to Ukraine, that we know in the back of their minds they have been aware and cautious about what could potentially escalate things further, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Turning to the latest on the ground in Ukraine, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says 60 to 100 Ukrainian troops are dying on the battlefield every day. The White House admits to CNN that incremental gains are being made by Russia and all eyes are on the east as Putin's army is gaining more ground in Severodonetsk, one of the last cities in the key Luhansk region that is slipping from Ukrainian into Russian control. While that fight rages, CNN's Matthew Chance visited the ruins of a small liberated village outside Kiev, still reeling from the carnage inflicted by Russia. 
In the liberated villages north of the Ukrainian capital, the streets are lined with the scars of war. And it's not just buildings destroyed. We met Sergei, a villager whose home was overrun by Russian troops, who then shot him, he says, and left him for dead. So it went there and then it went out the back. He shows me the gut-wrenching bullet wounds, but his emotional scars run even deeper. Sometimes I have nightmares and can't sleep at night, and I pray they won't ever come back, he tells me, through tears of pain and anger. I'll never forgive Russians for what they did, he says. And they did much worse. Just steps from Sergei's door, police forensic teams are unearthing yet another crime scene. Weeks after Russian troops were pushed from this area, locals are still finding the bodies of their neighbours. We were shown three makeshift graves on this street alone. What do you think when you see this? What, what goes through your mind when you, when you see these bodies being dug from these shallow graves at the side of the road? So we see that Russian troops have already gone for more than one month, but we still find the evidence of their presence. That's just astonishing, isn't it, that even a month after they've gone, more than a month, so still finding bodies. As it has Ukrainian officials tell me more than 320 civilians are still missing in this region alone. But one by one, they're being found. As a lot of people are missing, you cannot imagine the eyes of mothers whose children were lost. You cannot imagine eyes of relatives uh, whose beloved have been uh, captured or have been killed uh, on the front line. It is a awful, grim business, digging up the bodies of the thousands of people scattered across this entire country in shallow graves that have yet to be identified. This was Vitaly, just 43 years old, and the neighbours tell me he didn't present a threat to the Russians, he wasn't a soldier, in fact he was vulnerable. He didn't have a job, he, he drank too much, his family had left him, but he was hungry and he was trying to get some food from a Russian vehicle that was parked just here when they caught him and, uh, and shot him dead. Just one of the many alleged crimes, many tragedies in the Ukrainian nightmare that's yet to end. Well, Jake, tonight there are more concerns about the plight of the civilian population, particularly in areas where there is ferocious fighting still taking place between Ukrainian and Russian forces. Much of that now concentrated in the northeast of the country, in and around the city of Severodonetsk, where we now know from the Ukrainian side that 80% of the city has fallen into Russian hands. And there are social media images of bodies in the center of the city, apparently uh, of civilians. And so, again, more concerns about what's happening in that corner of Ukraine tonight. Jake. All right, Matthew Chance in Kyiv, thank you so much. Soaring gas prices up five cents in just one day. And that's modest compared to the spike experts say we could see in fewer than two weeks. Stay with us. 
In our money lead, gas prices once again hitting a new record high. AAA says the national average for regular gasoline in the United States has hit $4.67 a gallon. That's up five cents a gallon just since yesterday. Prices have spiked 48 cents over the past month and $1.62 since last year. CNN's Amber Walker joins us now live from a gas station in Atlanta, Georgia. Amber, what are drivers telling you about these soaring costs? Well, Jake, here in Georgia, the average price per gallon uh, for regular gas is about $4.16. That is the lowest average in the country right now. But look, overall, what we're seeing is a major spike compared to this time period last year when nationwide on average we were paying about $3 a gallon, believe it or not. Look, I spoke with a lot of drivers here at this quick trip gas station who are telling me it's really hitting them hard in the wallets. Every cent uh, is making the difference to them in terms of how long they're driving around to find the cheapest gas station. In terms of their summer travel plans, some saying, look, they've got a lot of pent up traveling that they've wanted to do because of the pandemic. They plan to continue with those road trip plans. But others tell me they're reconsidering. I want to go this summer to Florida um, and then I want to go to Savannah. And those are like close places. But if my gas don't allow it, I can't go because it'll affect my income. This takes $70 to fill up. And so you just think about going there and coming home and hotels and all that, like I can't afford that. I wish we could bring it back down to at least a reasonable rate where everyone can, you know, get out and enjoy the summer because I'm sure it's going to have an impact on not only me, but everyone. And Jake, right now there are seven states where drivers are averaging $5 a gallon. New York and Arizona are just pennies away uh, from that milestone. But of course, California taking the cake when it comes to the highest average price per gallon, $6.19. We actually have video from uh, our affiliate out in Los Angeles of a Chevron station that is charging over $8 a gallon. So look, needless to say, this is impacting uh basic choices people are making day-to-day, Jake. And gas prices typically go down after Memorial Day. What are analysts saying about when we can expect, what, uh, what we can expect over the next several weeks? Well, one oil analyst that spoke with CNN said he is expecting uh, the nationwide average uh, price per gallon to go up to $4.75 over the next 10 days. And look, there's a lot of factors uh, to consider, including uh, the there's still very high domestic demand for gas right now, especially as we're going into the summer travel months. And also there's a lot of uncertainty because of the war in Ukraine impacting uh, the global oil supply, Jake. All right, Emma Walker in Atlanta, Georgia for us. Thank you so much. CNN's Harry Enton joins us now from the magic wall with more on these rising costs. Harry, just how bad are gas prices from a historical and political point of view? I, I think that this table tells the story. So this is the yearly change in the average gasoline prices at this point in the midterm cycle. Right now, we're at the top, up 53% from last year. That is the highest in any midterm cycle since 1994. And as a student of political history, I can't help but notice that the next highest ones, 2006 and 2010, uh, saw major gains for the opposition party in 2006 being the Democrats and 2010 being the Republicans. And when I see gas prices, like you saw on that last slide, I 
can't help but think I want to do a lot more walking and not pay the price at the pump. And you might be asking yourself, okay, how is this impacting President Joe Biden? Look at his job performance on gas prices. You don't have to be a mathematical expert to know that 31% is a very, very bad number. The vast majority, more than two-thirds of Americans, disapprove of Joe Biden's job on gas prices, Jake. So another huge issue is in inflation in general uh, as we head into the midterms. How is that impacting President Biden? Uh, you know, I hate to say it if I were the president, but look at this. Basically the exact same approval rating, Joe Biden's job performance on inflation. Look at that. Just 28 percent disapproval rating. Two thirds of Americans disapprove of Joe Biden's job performance on inflation. And, you know, that is a very, 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 very bad number when what is the most urgent issue facing Americans? Look at that inflation. Thirty three percent. The clear runaway there. Three times as many folks who said abortion. And you might have remembered immigration was something that Republicans were going to want to hit on, on in this midterm election. But just 7% say that. They're much wiser refocusing on inflation. And if you watch Republican messaging, they're exactly doing that, Jake. And, and Harry, you touched on this already, but tell us more about what's happened in past elections when voters had this dismal of view of the economy. Yeah, so, I mean, just take a look at the overall economy. How are economic conditions doing? The current economy, only fair or poor, 85% of Americans say the current economy, they view it as only fair or poor. That is the worst since 2011. The economic outlook getting worse, 77%. That's the worst since 2009. These are historic numbers. And you know what, Jake? If we look back at White House losses, when 75% of folks think the economy is just fair or poor at this point in the midterm cycle, the White House lost 13, 63 seats. 54 seats in the House of Representatives. These are just very, very bad numbers overall. People don't like the way the economy is going. They don't like inflation. They don't like gas prices. And it's likely to hurt Democrats in this midterm. All right, Harry Enten, as always, good to see you, my friend. Bye, Jake. Coming up next, reaction from Johnny Depp and Amber Heard just in after a jury ruled on defamation. Take, stay with us. In our pop culture lead, a major victory today for Johnny Depp in his defamation lawsuit against his ex-wife, Amber Heard. The jury finding her liable in every one of his claims against her and ordering her to pay $15 million in damages to him. In her countersuit against Johnny Depp, the jury found him liable for only one claim and ordered him to pay her $2 million. At issue beyond this case, advocates say, are some legitimate claims of abuse and the ability of powerful people to get away with it. CNN's Gene Casares has been following this case from the beginning. A jury ruling that both Johnny Depp and ex-wife Amber Heard defamed each other in their civil suits. Do you find that Mr. Depp has proven all the elements of defamation? Answer, yes. Do you find that Ms. Heard has proven all the elements of defamation? Answer, yes. This decision coming after six weeks of dramatic testimony with the former couple facing off. Nothing I did made him stop hitting me. Nothing. I have never in my life committed sexual battery, physical abuse. 
At the center of the trial, abuse allegations heard made in a 2018 Washington Post op-ed. Though she never named Depp in the article, he sued his ex-wife for defamation, claiming in the $50 million suit that his career suffered as a result. Heard countersued Depp for $100 million. The former couple met in 2009 while filming the movie Rum Diary. He wrote that when he was 25 years old. Both testified their relationship became violent and abusive over time, including two incidents which took place in Australia, where the actor was filming the fifth Pirates of the Caribbean movie. I'm so sorry, were you still talking? Leading her to file a temporary restraining order against Depp in 2016. She threw the large bottle and it made contact and shattered uh, everywhere. And then I looked down and realized that the, the, the tip of my finger had been severed. I felt this pressure. I felt this pressure. He, oh, my pubic bone. He thought he was, thought he was punching me. The testimony was not all he said she said with recordings of fights and photos of alleged injuries introduced as evidence. By this point in our relationship, um, we're both saying awful things to each other, screaming at each other. On the stand, Depp denied abusing Heard. But never did I myself reach the point of um, uh, striking Miss Heard in any way nor have I ever struck uh, um, any woman um, in my life. Witnesses for both Depp and Heard gave sometimes emotional testimony about what they saw, and the former couple's counselor testified about their relationship. Um, they engaged in what I saw as mutual abuse. The jury came to a decision after nearly 14 hours of deliberation. And we have just received a statement from Amber Heard, and it says, quote, The disappointment I feel today is beyond words. I'm heartbroken that the mountain of evidence still was not enough to stand up to the disappoint, disproportionate power, influence, and sway of my ex-husband. I'm even more disappointed with what this verdict means for other women. It is a setback. It sets back the clock to a time when a woman who spoke up and spoke out should be publicly shamed and humiliated. It sets back the idea that violence against women is to be taken seriously. And we also have a statement from Johnny Depp, and he states, quote, from the very beginning, the goal of bringing this case was to reveal the truth, regardless of the outcome. Speaking the truth was something that I owed to my children and to all those who have remained steadfast in their support of me. I feel at peace knowing that I finally have accomplished that. And Jake, this trial was all about credibility. And it was all about the credibility of Amber Heard because it was her op-ed in the Washington Post that alleged that she was that face of domestic abuse. All right, Gene Casares, thank you so much. Coming up next, a, a look at why this verdict could have implications well beyond Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. Stay with us. We are back with the pop culture lead, a major legal victory today for actor Johnny Depp in the defamation case involving his ex-wife Amber Heard. Let's get some legal perspective on this case with attorney Ariva Martin and former federal prosecutor Renato Mariotti. 
Ariva, what's your reaction to this verdict? I think the jury got it wrong, Jake. I'm very disappointed in the jury verdict. I think this is another big win for powerful men, and it's a colossal loss for women. When you think about the allegations that were made in the UK case that involved defamation against a tabloid, the judge in that case found the allegations of Amber Heard to be credible, found that Johnny Depp did abuse Amber Heard. This jury, on the other hand, basically rejected the mountain of evidence that showed that Amber Heard, in fact, had been abused by Johnny Depp. The jury didn't have to find that each and every allegation was true. They could have found even one of them to be true. So you have to believe this jury believed that Amber Heard made up out of whole cloth each and every one of these allegations with details, with facts, to create this, what they're calling a hoax. And I just find that pretty incredible. So I'm really shocked and surprised by the jury verdict. Renata, what do you think? You know, I uh, I have to say my biggest concern, Jake, is about the impact that this is going to have more broadly. Usually in a defamation case, both sides lose because their dirty laundry gets aired out because they incur legal fees. Obviously, Johnny Depp can afford to spend a lot of money and, and have a case across the country and wasn't afraid to take this to trial. But I am concerned about defamation suits like this used in a lot of circumstances when women allege abuse. It's, it's generally not the right strategy. And my concern is about the effect it's going to have on our society. This case was largely centered around a 2018 op-ed Amber Heard wrote at thewashingtonpost.com. The jury asked about that and how it pertained to a claim in Depp's suit. Uh, they wanted to know if they should focus on the headline or the entire piece. And the judge said, just the headline. Um, how might that question uh, factor into this, Ariva? I think it may have factored into it and it may have caused this jury to ignore the other allegations of physical abuse that Amber Heard testified to. And what we know, Jake, statistically is that less than 10% of women lie about being sexually abused. We also know that one in three women will experience some kind of domestic violence in their lifetime. So when you think about those statistics and you think about the testimony that Amber Heard gave, again, the fact that not one of those allegations was believed by this jury is troubling to me. And like Renato said, I am concerned about the larger impact. This is the most high profile trial that we've had uh, in the Me Too era. We had cameras inside that courtroom. It became somewhat of a spectacle with the social media, uh, you know, really vilifying of Amber Heard. And I believe it sets women back and will have a chilling effect on women feeling as if they can come forward and uh, bring a claim against or even make allegations of physical violence and sexual abuse against powerful men. Because I remember that era when women did so, they weren't believed, they were maligned, uh, many lost their jobs and their careers. And I worry that this could be the outcome of this trial. And Renato, in last week's closing arguments, Amber Heard's attorney, Ben Rottenborn, told jurors that if Depp failed to prove that he never abused her, then she wins the case. He said, quote, a ruling against Amber here sends the message that no matter what you do as an abuse victim, you always have to do more. Do do you think that's what played out here? Well, I will say this is a, the burden that uh, Depp had was pretty substantial here. He had to prove by clear and convincing evidence that Heard had actual malice. In other words, that she, she recklessly disregarded the truth here, uh, not that she was mistaken or that she maybe exaggerated a little bit, but that she was substantially trying to lie uh, and defame him. And he did so. And he, obviously, um, his team 
Um, you know, his team proved that. I know there's different opinions about uh, why that is and whether, you know, whether or not, uh, for example, gender bias factored into that. What I will say is, it, you know, usually in a, in a defamation case, it is very difficult to meet that standard when the person is a public figure. Yeah, Renata Mariotti, Ariva Martin, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Breaking news from the White House. President Biden admitting he was behind the ball on the baby food shortage, the infant formula. The comments just coming in, and we press the administration on where all the newly imported formula into the U.S. is actually going. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, four days of pageantry, including parades and concerts and an estimated 16,000 street parties. And don't forget... The royal rumors and the family drama. The Queen's 70-year jubilee. Plus, breaking news from the White House, President Biden with a stunning admission about the infant formula shortage that's been plaguing parents across the United States for months. And leading this hour with a CNN exclusive, we're hearing from the Uvalde School District police chief for the first time since Texas state officials said he made the wrong call by telling officers outside the classroom where the gunman was to refrain from storming the classroom. That school police chief now telling CNN that he's been in contact with the Texas Department of Public Safety, but the Department of Public Safety says the chief is not following up with their requests. CNN's Omar Jimenez is in Uvalde, Texas, where investigators are still trying to get to the bottom of how this horrific shooting happened. Facing cameras for the first time in nearly a week, Uvalde School Police Chief Pete Arredondo greets officers standing guard outside his home. We're not going to release anything. We have we have people in our community being buried, so, so right, we're going to be respectful. I, I Deflecting questions from CNN about decisions to delay entering the Robb Elementary classroom on the day of the shootings. How do you we're explain yourself? Be, to we're going to be respectful to the family. But when? He was asked. We're going to do that eventually, obviously. Why? And whenever this is done, and let the families quit grieving, then we'll do that, obviously. And just so, we have, just so everybody, and just so everybody, just so everybody feels. knows, we've been in contact with DPS every day. Just so you all know, they say you're every not. Day. They say that you're not cooperating. I've, I've been on the phone with them every day. The embattled chief was quietly sworn in to the city council on Tuesday. When CNN questioned the secrecy, he called the meeting "quote a private thing." That was done out of respect for grieving families. On the investigation, the Texas Department of Public Safety now says the back door the shooter used to access Robb Elementary was closed, but unlocked, contradicting earlier reports that the door had been propped open by a teacher. What about the door? I understand, but the door. The Uvalde School District spokeswoman, when asked about the unlocked door, deferred to a statement released today that students and staff will not be returning to the Robb Elementary campus and that they're also working with agencies to help us identify improvements on all UCISD campuses. We've been speaking to resident after resident here, a woman whose niece was killed, a local store employee whose cousin was killed, a fast food employee whose niece was killed, another person who is not too far from here, grew up going to Robb Elementary, and then decades later hears gunshots before calling 911. All of them were too heartbroken to go on camera being that close to the story. But one thing we heard from every single one of them is that this goes beyond this week. This is something that is going to be with them for the rest of their lives. Today, more funerals for teacher Irma Garcia and her husband, Jose, who died 
of a heart attack just days after his wife was gunned down. The community grieving and frustrated. Now with more services to come every day for the next week. As for Arredondo, it's I leave it to his conscience. Why didn't he do more? That's all. Why didn't he do more? And what exactly was done in those moments is precisely what's under investigation right now. Now, we followed up with the Texas Department of Public Safety on Arredondo's comments to CNN that he had been in contact with them every day after, of course, DPS said that he hadn't responded to their request for a follow-up interview in days. We haven't heard back there. Separately, Governor Greg Abbott recently announced that he is now asking for a comprehensive review of school safety uh, across the state, all of it within the backdrop, of course, of continuing funerals, Jay. All right, Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill are proposing new gun restrictions in the wake of the Uvalde shooting. One of these proposals is pushing states to offer red flag laws, which allow authorities to seize guns and block the sales of firearms to people showing signs of violent intent. Florida, with its Republican governor and Republican-led legislature, enacted that measure in the wake of the 2018 massacre at Parkland's Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, in which 17 innocent people were killed. CNN's Leila Santiago is in Florida with an up-close look at how these orders work in that state. You are to have no firearms or ammunition in your possession. This is what it looks like when a red flag law is at work. Oh, would you raise your right hand, please? In this Florida courtroom, we watched as a judge ordered individuals to turn over their guns. I haven't used a gun in two years. The judge ordered this man to give up his weapons. The man told us it was because he sent a photo of himself with a gun pointed at his chin to a loved one on the anniversary of his son's death. He agreed to surrender his gun. Listen, I'm a strong Second Amendment guy. I'm a conservative. I believe risk protection orders work. Those risk protection orders, or RPOs, that the Polk County Sheriff Grady Judd is talking about are at the center of Florida's red flag law. It allows a judge to temporarily take away firearms and ammunition from anyone deemed a threat by law enforcement, usually for a year. They can't buy guns either. It's simply a cooling off period until you have some mental health counseling. Florida is one of 19 states that have passed a law like this, one of just a few red states with such legislation. We left nothing on the table uh, to make sure that we prevented what happened here at Douglas from happening in the state of Florida again. Former State Representative Jared Moskowitz graduated from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. In 2018, after a gunman killed 17 students and faculty there, lawmakers passed legislation that not only established its red flag law, it also raised the age requirement to buy a gun from 18 to 21, added a three-day waiting period, a guardian program which allows trained school staff to carry guns, and set aside $400 million for, among other things, things, mental health and school security. Gun reform with bipartisan support passed by a Republican legislature signed into law by a Republican governor in a matter of weeks. Not one Republican who voted for that bill in Florida has paid a political price for protecting kids and doing the right thing. We all have to work together to say this person's got a problem and if we don't address it, they have a 
large propensity to be an active assailant at some point in time. Data obtained by CNN showed that more than 8,000 orders have been granted across the state. Every NRA member. But the NRA has sued the state of Florida over the gun reform legislation, and gun advocates are voicing concerns. If there's such a threat that they're threatening somebody with a weapon already, well, then they've already broken the law, so why do you need this other law? Let me tell Representative Crenshaw, if that were so, then Florida, which is dominated by conservatives, the Republicans, wouldn't have passed RPOs. And as the country once again grapples with finding solutions to end horrific school shootings, in Florida, Republicans and Democrats say this Do you have any other weapons? is working. I know we're more divided now than we were just four years ago. I mean, we didn't just give up. I mean, this was predictable and preventable. Nothing is more important than protecting our children. Nothing. And Jake, let's take a look at the research. If you look at Connecticut, whose red flag law has been in place since 1999, so 23 years, one analysis there found that for every 10 to 20 guns taken away by these risk protection orders, one suicide was averted. Mm. Leila Santiago in Polk County, Florida. Thanks. Great report. Really interesting. Let's discuss with Congressman Ruben Gallego of Arizona. He's a Democrat. What do you think? Are red flag laws a good, a good way to start with this, this problem that we have in the U.S.? Would you like to see them expanded on a national level? Would you like to see them in your home state of Arizona that I couldn't help but notice was not included uh, in that map? Well, certainly I do think uh, it is a good start. Uh, you know, kudos to the Republicans in Florida that got together in a bipartisan manner, and really led in, with courage and passed laws that have really saved probably hundreds of lives. It certainly would save a lot of lives in Arizona, especially people that are uh, attempting suicide. Uh, this is actually one of the be- biggest, uh, those, that, that community is one of the biggest beneficiaries of this. But it is a good start. There are other gun safety regulations that we should really be looking at, and I think that would also be, uh, could also be inclusive and could also be very helpful. But, you know, let's, let's at least get moving with, with this. What are some of the other ones that you would like to see that, let's, and let's be clear here, that you think could pass the Senate? Because obviously Democrats control the House, but you need 60 votes in the Senate. Right. What, what do you want to see that could win over 10 Republicans plus Joe Manchin, plus Kirsten Sinema? Well, I think it's very logical for us to say, because we already do, that if you're below the age of 21, you do not have a right to buy a handgun. Why are we allowing young Which men... Which is already the law. For it's those already the people. law. Yeah. Why are we allowing young men, young women below the age of 21, to buy a weapon that is even more dangerous than a handgun, uh, especially these, these, these AR-15-style variant weapons, right? I think that's something logically that they did in Florida, and I think it's the same thing we can do here. I know it requires a little bit of courage from some of our Republican colleagues, but this is the type of moment that, you know, I think we can actually get together and say that we can actually truly save lives. Had we had a red flag law plus uh, a ban on those types of weapons being sold to men uh, under the age of 21, I don't think you'd, the chances of us having a Uvalde shooting are way diminished. Well, and look, first of all, it's very clear that the, the Uvalde shooter waited until he turned 18 and bought that gun legally. I think it's the same is true uh, for the Buffalo shooter and the Parkland shooter, I, I, I believe. Let me ask you, be, because I have, I have raised this with uh, Senator Pat Toomey, uh, who's generally conservative on these gun issues, but he's, he's shown some wiggle room and, and willing to work with Democrats. Toomey's response when I said, Handguns are banned for anyone under 21. Why not do the same for all firearms? Toomey's response, especially AR-15s, his response was, well, you can serve in the military at age 18. <laughs> so why is it okay for somebody in the, in the Army uh-huh. to, to have an AR-15 at 18, but not somebody right. who's not in the Army? 
you served, what would you be your response to Senator Toomey? Well, number one, you can have a, a, a rifle if you're going to go hunting, but you don't need an AR-15 to go hunting. Number two, uh, when you serve in the military, you don't actually have a gun. That weapon belongs to the government. And before you can even use that weapon, you have to go through a background check. Uh, you're going to be under constant sur- uh, surveillance. That weapon's not even in your possession most of the time. It's actually in the armory. It's accounted for. Every bullet's accounted for. And you have to requal and qualify uh, every year. Before I even got to shoot my first round, I had to lay on the grass uh, and aim down a, a, down a barrel for two weeks and dry firing the Marine Corps. So if we wanted to actually establish that as a norm for all shooters, I'd be fine with that. Uh, but they're, they're, they're not the same. It's, it's, not, it's definitely apples and oranges. Uh, and again, you know, you can't compare the two. So the House Judiciary Committee is going to vote on tomorrow on a package of gun reform measures that almost certainly will pass the, the Democratic-controlled House, but do not really have a chance of getting 60 votes in the Senate. Um, why do that now? When there seem to be legitimate efforts at a bipartisan compromise going on, Senator John Cornyn, Senator Pat Toomey, Senator Susan Collins, Republicans trying to work with Democrats to find something. Might this not? I mean, there's plenty of time between now and November for Democrats to pass a bill that can't get through the Senate, but they can pass the House. Why do that now? Why not wait and and give these bipartisan uh, committee, this bipartisan coalition time to work? Well, for us in the House, you know, trying to figure out the mysteries of the Senate is, uh, is usually looking into a very, very uh, you know, a foggy crystal ball. Also, the other thing we have to focus on, there is an outcry really that's happening in our communities right now. And not just you know, in mass school shootings, but also every day where the shootings in our urban, urban parts of our country or just any parts of our country. They do want to see that, they, that there's politicians and there's actually elected officials that care about them. And we do have sensible gun-safe uh, regulations that we should be pushing, we should be talking about, and we should be talking about them all the time. So, yes, they may not have a chance in the Senate. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be having those conversations because one day we will have a chance to actually pass these types of regulations and truly save lives. Are you going to run uh, against Kirsten Sinema for the Senate? I think this is something that we'll talk about in 2023. Right now, we're going to focus on 2022 and passing these these pieces of legislation. I had to try. Congressman Ruben Gallego, good to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. Breaking news on the infant formula shortage. Turns out President Biden did not think the shortage was going to be this bad until April. But remember, the Abbott factory was shut down by the FDA in February. We're going to talk to a member of the administration next. Plus, it's getting nasty on the golf course, why the PGA is now threatening to punish some of the top professional golfers in the world. Stay with us. news on our money lead just moments ago. President Biden conceded that he did not understand how big of an effect the shutdown of one baby formula plant would have on the country until April. The White House previously said it had been working on addressing the shortages since that factory was shut down in February. CNN's Caitlin Collins is at the White House. Caitlin, you just pressed President Biden about the timeline. What did he have to say? Yeah, Jake, the president saying he did not understand the severity of the baby formula shortage until early April At first, of course, that was well after the shortage was underway, given the Abbott facility that had closed and led to so many of the shortages that you're still seeing nationwide was actually shuttered back in mid-February. That was long after complaints had first been made about the facility last fall. And according to lawmakers, the FDA was very slow to act when it came to interviewing employees at the plant and actually moving to get it closed, which happened months later in February. And Jake, the president made these comments as he was meeting with baby formula manufacturers here at the White House, talking to them about whether or not they were able to gauge the impact that the closure of that facility would have on the stock of baby formula nationwide. And several of them, Jake, telling the president they knew it would have a very large impact. 
Didn't the CEOs just tell you that they understood it would have a very big impact? They did, but I didn't. When were you aware? The FDA have been more aware of that when they took months to conduct the inspection to interview people at this plant after the complaints were made and then only shuttered it in February? Well, the real problem occurred when it started, when it got shuttered. Um, so you're saying we, they should have anticipated it would be shuttered. The answer is, well, here's the deal. I became aware of this problem sometime in after April, in early April, about how intense it was. And so we did everything in our power from that point on, and that's all I can tell you right now. Now, Jake, at the White House briefing that just happened, they were asked multiple times why the president wasn't informed by staff sooner about how bad this shortage was, why he wasn't informed until April. They did not offer any real answers to that, Jake. They said instead this has been a whole government approach. Of course, it wasn't one that involved the president, according to the president, until April. Caitlin, President Biden also just admitted that there's not much in his view that he can do to lower prices for Americans right, n- this, right now. Not a message that a lot of Americans suffering from inflation uh, were hoping to hear. No, but it's one that has been a realistic conversation inside the White House. The president saying there is no switch he can just click to change gas prices immediately in the near term to get them back to closer to the average of $3 a gallon. Now that we are seeing gas prices come up every day, including five cents today alone, saying that it is going to be really difficult. And Jake, he talked about other ways he could potentially ease the pressures that are on American households right now when it comes to other prices of drugs, prices of of, uh, food, things like that that he could deal with with and child care as well. But he said that that is going to take some time, Jake. So what he is saying is right now in the immediate future, it is going to be a struggle and that the gas prices aren't likely to change anytime soon. Of course, that has been something the White House has been dealing with as they are on this new messaging push to convince voters they are aware of how high the prices are and they are working to bring them down, even if that is not happening in the near term, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins with the White House. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss is the director of the White House National Economic Council, Brian Deese. Brian, Your council's working on the response to the baby formula shortage. The White House has said the administration's been working on the issue since February. So how come President Biden didn't know it was going to be bad until April? Well, let me just uh, clarify what's going on here. We were um, informed by the FDA of the closure in February. And from that point, the FDA uh, and the staff uh, across the administration in all the relevant agencies in the White House was working to try to address the issue. Part of the reason why production has increased and uh, the companies that were here today have been able to increase production by as much as they have is they've been working on this issue now for months. Uh, But it took too long for Abbott to agree to a consent degree. Uh, And once it was clear that that uh, facility was not going to be able to come back online sooner, then it was clear that we were gonna have a more significant challenge. Brian, why why didn't anyone uh, tell the the president? The president was informed. Why didn't anybody tell the president until April? At that point, the president was informed, and the president directed us to use all the available uh, tools that uh, that we had available uh, to address them. And that's why, for example, uh, we issued the DPA. And as you and I have discussed, the, the opportunity to use the DPA comes in when production facilities are at full production to make sure that supplies are uninterrupted. The reason why the producers were in that position to do that was because of the work that had been uh, taken to date. Uh, And we are now uh, moving out, not only with the DPA, but also Operation Fly Formula uh, and other measures as well to to approve more uh, importers as well. I I guess I still just don't fully understand why you didn't tell the president until April if the 
If the problem was reported to the FDA last fall, the FDA didn't check it out uh, and until, I think, December, and then they shut down the factory in February. The president, the guy who, the only one who can invoke the Defense Production Act to uh, force companies to produce the, this incredibly direly needed infant formula, he's not told until April. The, the, uh, Karine Jean-Pierre, your, your press secretary, just said this has been a whole-of-government approach. Th- that doesn't include the president? The FDA took the appropriate measures to shut down the facility in February. And when that happened, the FDA and the relevant uh, officials from across the government were on, focused on the effort to try to increase production from other producers and also figure out how quickly they could get that facility back online. It took too long to get that facility back online. It took too long to get Abbott to agree to a consent decree. Once it was clear that that facility was not going to be able to come back online, it was clear we were going to need to even more greatly increase production, particularly of those specialty formulas. But I want to be very clear that the president's role in this has been at the right and appropriate moments when we needed to do things like the Defense Production Act, when we needed to take extraordinary measures like Operation Fly Formula. He has been informed. He has directed the action uh, that we have taken. Okay, so the whistleblower complained in the fall. The FDA waited till December to act, waited until February to shut the plant down. President Biden wasn't told about it until April. You don't think any of that should have been done more quickly or, or, or sooner? You, you think everything just went exactly how it's supposed to? Look, the, the FDA commissioner has already said that he will conduct a thorough investigation to make sure that we understand fully the timeline. And I will leave that. Uh, those, those evaluations with respect to the facility uh, and making safety judgments, uh, I will leave to the FDA. Once the facility was shut down, what was clear was that we were going to need to do two things. One, the FDA was going to have to work to reach a consent decree with Abbott to get that facility back going and that other producers were going to need to ramp up their production. It did not happen fast enough that the consent decree with Abbott was reached. And as a result, uh, we are in a position where we had to then take extraordinary measures to rely on production from other facilities. Those extraordinary measures required the direct, uh, the president's direct intervention. And that's what the president has directed. And that's what the president has done. I don't need the FDA to investigate itself to come to the judgment that they did not act quickly enough. And on behalf of all the frustrated moms and dads and guardians out there, uh, I hope you don't either. Well, look, these are really serious safety judgments, and you're absolutely right that people are are right to uh, be frustrated and concerned. But when the FDA goes to a facility and conducts an investigation, that has to be done thoroughly and in their best scientific judgment. And so I think it is appropriate that they look at that timeline and, and understand uh, what, what happened in that context. But I also think that we need to, we need to take very seriously that... Oh, 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 whoa, 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 guys. Our camera fell down. Okay. Brian Deese, thank you so much. President Biden sending rockets to Ukraine. CNN is near the front lines where Ukrainian forces say those rockets could prove very useful. Stay with us. In our world lead today, today marks Children's Day in Ukraine. Officials in Ukraine say at least 243 Ukrainian kids have been killed, hundreds more injured, since the start of Russia's attack on Ukraine. Experts say these estimates are presumed to be a vast undercount as Undercount as Russian troops are still actively storming at least one eastern city, Severodonetsk. Let's get right to CNN's Melissa Bell, who is live from Zaporizhia. Melissa, the head of the Luhansk Regional Military Administration says that Russians now control most of that city. 
80% of it uh, this hour, Jake, it is street-to-street combat that is now taking place. And what we've been hearing from that head of the regional military administration uh, is that there's been heavy shelling all around the Luhansk area with those villages, those settlements still in Ukrainian hands, uh, the scenes of heavy shelling uh, this evening. They've managed to evacuate some of the civilians. They've been managed to bring some humanitarian aid in, but the fall of Severodonetsk, uh, were it to happen, means that the only large city in the area that will remain in Ukrainian hands in the whole of Luhansk uh, will be uh, the big city uh, next door, Lysychansk. Now, that's important because it means that 90% of the Luhansk region will be in Russian hands. And just to put that in perspective for you, before the start of the Russian invasion, those two breakaway people's republics of Donetsk and Luhansk people's republic represented about 31% of the entire Donbass region. Tonight, uh, we believe that it is two-thirds of that region that is under Russian control. And, and today, the Biden administration announced it will be sending the most powerful and advanced rocket systems to date as part of the U.S.'s 11th security package to Ukraine. How important do Ukrainian forces think these weapons will be? Uh, crucial. And I think a lot, has been, a lot has been made of the question of their range because Ukrainians had been asking for a long, longer range than what they've received. But to give you an example here in Zaporizhia, the Russian positions are about 30 miles down the Dnieper River. And uh, what we've been seeing here over the course of the last 48 hours is heavy shelling of some of the settlements, the villages just to the south of here. Now, the weapons that we're talking about that the State Department confirmed Ukraine was going to be receiving uh, include not just uh, rocket systems that will allow them to get uh, within about 49 miles, so crucial in terms of range somewhere here. Uh, But more importantly, perhaps, Jake, uh, they are much more modern than anything that the Ukrainian armed forces have right now. So not just rocket systems, uh, but also munitions that guide themselves towards targets and specifically artillery positions that have proven so effective and so devastating for the Russian forces since they began that invasion and continue to cause huge damage, uh, not just in that northern part of the Donbass that I was talking about a moment ago, but all the way down that line right through Zaporizhia and all the way down uh, to Kherson, uh, that line that divides even tonight uh, Russian-held Ukraine from the rest of the country, Jake. All right, Melissa Bell in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. Thanks so much. In our sports lead today, a well-earned victory for Ukraine's men's national soccer team today beating Scotland 3-1 in the World Cup playoff semifinal. The match had been delayed for three months because of the war in Ukraine, but now the team is just one win away from officially qualifying for the 2022 FIFA World Cup in Qatar, set to begin in November. Emotions understandably high as players became A vivid display of national identity on the international stage. Russia, meanwhile, was banned from its qualification playoff semifinal. A big shakeup at Facebook, one of the social media company's familiar faces, is leaning out. Stay with us. In our tech lead, Sheryl Sandberg is stepping down from Meta, the parent company of Facebook. Sandberg told Facebook founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg, Over the weekend of her decision to leave her job as chief operating officer, and moments ago, a spokesperson for Meta told the lead exclusively that Zuckerberg is supportive of her decision. Sandberg has been with Facebook for 14 years. She officially steps down as COO this fall, but will retain a seat on the board of Meta. Turning down to our politics lead, the recount for Pennsylvania's Republican Senate primary race is officially underway as celebrity Dr. Mehmet Oz holds a narrow lead over David McCormick with about 900 votes, but now McCormick's chances may be getting even slimmer. The Supreme Court has stepped in and temporarily blocked the counting of some mail-in ballots. Let's discuss. Alyssa, let me start with you. At issue of the ballots, 
were voters did not write a date uh, on the outer envelope. Uh, those, um, those envelopes do get postmarked by the post office and timestamped by the counties when they receive it. But state law does say it needs to have uh, the date written by uh, the voter. Uh, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito paused a ruling that would have allowed the ballots to be counted. How is this news being received in Republican circles? Well, the RNC is basically siding with the McCormick camp, or I'm sorry, with the Dr. Oz camp here, because I think the understanding is a prolonged recount that spans into mid-late June is going to ultimately boost Fetterman, the Democrat. I'd say this, with all due respect to your home state, the Pennsylvania laws make it incredibly hard to actually count ballots, have confidence from any voter that their ballots are being counted the right way. And this is sort of an interesting mix of the post-Trump, post-Big Lie era, where you're seeing one candidate, this very slim margin, saying we need to fight through and through, make all, make sure all the votes are counted, whereas the other is just saying, no, we're going to hang on this, you know, kind of, you know, something that who would think to even write the date necessarily on their ballot? That's a very easy oversight to do. And so they're saying, nope, we're going to kind of push through. So I think Dr. Oz is going to pull it out. But the at the end of the day, I think the goal of the Republicans should be more votes need to we need to be counting as many votes as we can, not going this other direction. You're a fellow Pennsylvanian. What do you what do you make <laughs> yeah. of that? That's fighting words. I, well, I will say, I mean, we ran into this during the presidential election as well. The rules for absentee ballots for ballots that are coming in through the mail are a little bit complex in Pennsylvania. They're actually pretty easy to screw up. And so I do think there is this broader question where, you know, I think. It's important for journalists especially to be consistent in saying as many people whose votes can be counted should be within the law. Uh, right now, Pennsylvania's law is written a certain way, which is it's why it's written this- saying that the voter has to write it, even right. if it's clear that the vote the ballot came in uh, right. at the right time. Exactly. And so yeah. it's going to be up to the, the legislator to, to the legislature to change it if that's what they decide that they want to do. I think the important thing here, the political question is it does become harder every day. Every day that David McCormick trails. Mehmet Oz in this race, it becomes harder for his campaign to see any change in the outcome. Yeah, and, and Mehmet Oz has declared himself the, quote, presumptive winner right. of the primary, even though nothing's official yet. Is that premature, you think, or does that make sense? Well, it depends on who, which audience you're trying to please, and uh, Donald Trump was telling him he had to do it. He felt that he had to do it. I think on this broader question of whether these technicalities, these small technicalities, like did you handwrite a date on something where it's... It, it's not, it may not be material relevant, but when it's what the law says, like that is a warning sign to every voter in every state in America that you have to read the fine print. If you want your vote to be counted, you have to follow the instructions explicitly. And it's of grave concern to um, uh, voting rights advocates, people who want to expand ballot access, because it shows you that when legislatures kind of put all these little bits into the law, technicalities that can trip you up, it costs votes. And it, it, if it's a Republican versus Republican or a Democrat versus a Democrat, it's not the party, you know, that's affected. It's the candidate. But when it's a general election, there's two parties and it'll play out. I mean, I just think this may be a foreshadowing of things to come. And, yeah. and I mean, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is, first of all, these are Republican votes uh, that they're throwing out. Right. I mean, it's a Republican primary. Yeah. So the Republican votes are throwing out. And second of all, there really is no presumption of, well, you're a Pennsylvania legal voter. We want your vote to count. Even if you forgot to put the date on it, we know that it arrived in time. Well, I mean, I think that's the reality of elections now in this country, which is that the, this should be a moment of just an expression of a voter's will, of the public's will of actually making this decision. That is not how the Republican Party and certainly MAGA Republicans are litigating this. You know, Dr. Oz is on one side of the argument this time, McCormick. It could be switched next time. The point is really to, to gain power 
That's what this is an exercise in. And, you know, McCormick is on one side of the argument now that the, the date doesn't matter. The law is wrong. Let's see if that's actually, if he wins the primary, what he actually thinks in November, if that's actually the place they will land. And it just goes to show you that from their perspective, the truth and actually the expression of public will is never the exercise. Yeah, and I think we've all covered or been part of enough recounts to know that you're trailing by 900 votes so long after the primary, it doesn't look good. Um, uh, Politico has new reporting that says GOP operatives are something a multi-pronged network of party loyalists that could could cause... uh, Chaos on Election Day, Politico outlines four specific networks are all focused on. Poll workers, GOP lawyers, district attorneys, board of canvassers. All of this helps put in place a partisan takeover of vote counting and certifying of votes if things don't go their way. Um, Is that, I mean, look, there's always a degree of this in every election, but they're preparing to push and challenge in ways that, that... we hadn't really seen before. Well, and this is related to the previous conversation, which is the Republican Party, my party, should be putting money, putting recruitment, putting training toward getting as many people to register as Republicans, to want to vote Republican. But instead, they're focusing their efforts on how are we going to challenge results at the ballot box? That's, to me, the wrong focus. If you have a winning message, this is not where you need to have your focus being. And granted, poll watchers have always been partisan. Changing that it's poll workers that you're recruiting to be distinctly partisan concerns me a bit. Um, This is the Trump playbook. They want to play in states and challenge election results at the state level. And you're going to see more of this. Michigan, obviously, hugely consequential. But I know Nevada has looked at similar measures. Yeah. Are Democrats prepared for this? I I don't know that they are. I mean, this is a challenge because what do you do? These are the the key point here, Alyssa made, is that poll watchers is something both parties have done. Sure. Now we're talking about someone who's an official who is a direct line to the RNC, (laughs) to, you know, start a process of creating chaos. And you, you, you're right to say they could, but that is the goal of this whole operation that the RNC is standing up. It is to create chaos. Whether they're successful or not is not really a thing Democrats are going to have a, a, an easy hand in controlling. I, I think this is great reporting by Politico, and I think it sort of shines a spotlight on what Republicans are trying to do in states across the country. What do you make of it all? Well, I think the environment in Michigan is actually potentially very much a tinderbox um, because of some of the way that the the state's politics have broken, some of the militia activity that goes on. And I think one of the things that we need to see from our institutions and that, you know, many of of my sources on both sides of the aisle, Republicans tend not to say it in public as much uh, as Democrats do. But there is concern that this lays the groundwork for something worse than just our politics being about choices and ballots and counting votes and instead crossing the wrong line into violence. And so I think there, there needs to be a, a, a very careful, um, you know, accounting and approach when it comes to these kinds of things, or you're potentially ginning people up for something um, that, you know, our system should categorically reject. I want to turn to the infant formula shortage for a second, because you just heard Brian Dees um, talking about uh, why it was appropriate that President Biden didn't find out about this crisis until April, uh, even though the Abbott factory was shut down in February, and the whistleblower complaint was last fall. Um, Do you think his explanation and his argument was good enough for voters? I think this is a big topic of conversation, uh, and that if President Biden really wasn't briefed on this for two months, um, it's a problem about how the administration communicates internally. And if he was, and it just wasn't a formal briefing or something like that, that we will find that out too. I think for, uh, for the president and for his team and for the Democratic Party, the real problem with inflation and supply chain and now baby formula is this. This impacts um, the most important parts of their base and of their swing, right? Inflation is infecting, uh, affecting, infecting, affecting people of color, 
affecting young people. Um, this is affecting women. Young moms. <laughs> young moms. Sorry, but the fact that the president didn't know this, right. like I have a two and a half year old son, all of my friends' contacts, I mean, yes, I'm in the news business, but I heard about this from my social networks in February yeah. when the plant was closed and it's the a- formula was recalled. It is terrifying if you are a parent and parents knew about this then. How did the White House not Well, at best, it's a massive staff failure, but ultimately the buck stops with the president. This was foreseeable. I don't know if he's distracted by other aspects of COVID, but we were told the adults are back in charge and this was a foreseeable crisis they didn't act on. Thanks one and all for being here. It is the Queen's party and she can do what she wants to, including control the invite list. Who will and who won't be by the Queen's side during the big jubilee? Stay with us. In our world lead platinum jubilee, a historic four-day celebration begins tomorrow for Queen Elizabeth II. A moment ago, a special portrait of the Queen was released ahead of the ceremony honoring her 70 years of service. CNN's Max Foster looks at what to expect from the royal celebration. The final preparations are underway to celebrate a moment of history. Queen Elizabeth, the first British royal to celebrate a platinum jubilee, commemorating 70 years of service. The lineup includes a birthday parade with gun salutes, and the lighting of beacons across the Commonwealth. A Thanksgiving service, a palace concert, a platinum pageant. 12 million people across the UK are set to attend street parties over the weekend. Seven decades on the throne is a huge milestone. Very hard working lady. The same kind of feeling as the weddings. It's just everybody's happy and you want to make friends and say hi and smile. She is the crown jewels. And I'll just say thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Events get started on Thursday with the Trooping of the Colour, which has marked the official birthday of the British Sovereign for more than 260 years. All the pomp and pageantry that 1,200 members of the military, hundreds of army musicians and around 240 horses can muster. On Sunday, the Gold State coach will make its first appearance in decades, leading a procession of performers and personalities. Prince Charles will step in when his mother feels unable to make an event. What's always most telling about these occasions is the balcony appearance. It's used to project the modern face of British monarchy. In 2002, we saw the entire extended family. In 2012, it was stripped right back to its core to reflect the more austere times. And this year, it's working royals only. So that means you won't see Prince Andrew or Prince Harry with Meghan. They're all off the list. The Sussexes are invited and will appear, possibly with their two children, during events. And the world will be looking closely at their body language as they interact with other members of the family following that rift. It will be quite something, Jake, I have to say, to see the Sussexes, the monk in the royal fold once again. But I have to say, down here on the Mall, people camping out, ready for the big moment. Many of them royal fans, many of them just wanting to come along, have a party and uh, celebrate after some tough few years for everyone. Really, though, the focus is on the Queen, all those years of service. This will be a hive of activity tomorrow and people are very keen to get in the best positions. Um, It's going to be fun, I think, Jake. All right. Have fun, Max. Max Foster outside Buckingham Palace. Thank you. Who knew a golf tournament could spark so much drama? There's a threat from the PGA, and now some of the world's top players are firing back. I'll explain next. 
To our sports lead now, the PGA is threatening disciplinary action for tour golfers who participate in the new Saudi-backed golf event. The move comes as Dustin Johnson says he will headline the Saudi LIV League. LIV Golf says its tour will kick off on June 9th, which is the same time as the PGA Tour's Canadian Open. A spokesperson for Johnson says, quote, Dustin has been contemplating the opportunity. He decided it was in his and his family's best interest to pursue it. Johnson's already facing blowback for his decision. The Royal Bank of Canada announcing today they will no longer sponsor him. The LIV League comes as Saudi Arabia has been under scrutiny for the slaughter of journalist Hamal Khashoggi and for the war in Yemen, to say nothing of its overall day-to-day horrific human rights record. Six-time major winner Phil Mickelson's name so far is absent from the LIV event. Mickelson has been an outspoken supporter of the new tour. Rory McIlroy weighing in that golfers should not be punished for participating, but that he would not participate himself. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. You can listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.